All right, so we're going to get this started in three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey, guys. Welcome back. This is Missing Out. I'm your host, Tari J. Miller, and I'm here with... The other host, Lex Michael. Dang tootin'. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about the wonderful... I have opinions. Wonderful slash bewildering slash 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 etc. Yeah, Tari, what are we talking about? We're talking about Rain Dogs by Tom Waits. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was uh, re- released in 1985. Yes. Uh, September 30th, I believe. was September 30th. Yeah, which was very close to my day of birth, only a year and something early. So not that close. Very close in the scale of the cosmic universe. Very close. <laughs> uh, so, all right, yes. Um, what? All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about our general thoughts i mean i have some questions for you yes so i i suggested this album because we talked about doing music in addition to uh focusing on movies potentially television as well uh we wanted to share some of our let's say formative uh albums with each other and and explain uh what they represent to us that the other person may not have experienced so tom waits for me is a big deal for a number of reasons uh, I recognize because I had my own uh, very similar experience when I first got into Tom Waits' stuff. If you've never heard it before, I, for me, when I first encountered his music, I was like, this is really interesting. But but more than interesting, this feels downright impenetrable. And I really felt I had to. Like, I feel like a lot of people have to uh, retrain my ear to really get used to it. And once you do that... It, the, it pays out uh, dividends uh, okay. as far as your ability to enjoy it. And also was a big deal for me as far as sh- helping shift my musical taste in general into stuff that's maybe a little bit weirder. But also, okay, so uh, Tom Waits, and I remember telling you this when I suggested uh, talking about uh, Tom Waits and the album Rain Dogs in particular. Uh, I referred to you to Tom Waits as... Uh, one of, if not the yeah, lofty praise, uh, greatest American composer, certainly of the modern era. Right. Um, his career is is pretty big. He's got he's got some I believe sixteen of his own studio albums, a bunch of live albums, but he's also a very prolific writer of songs that were turned into big hits for other artists. Um, notably, uh, the song Jersey Girl by Bruce Springsteen comes to mind. That's a Tom Waits composition. Mm-hmm. That's off of, uh, I believe, the Heart Attack and Vine album. He wrote uh, Old 55, which became a hit for the Eagles. Uh, the, a track on Rain Dogs, Downtown Train, if I'm not mistaken, became a hit for Rod Stewart at a certain point. Right. He also, I think last time we got together, you mentioned jokingly, but uh, I, I believe this is accurate, that you have seen at least some of The Wire. Correct. So way down in the hole, the theme song that they use a different version of every season of The Wire is a Tom Waits song. Season two, they use his original version of it. Um, Interesting. That's a track off of Frank's Wild Years, which was the album that followed Rain Dogs. And those two make up two parts of a loose trilogy, which began with the preceding album called Swordfish Trombones, which really marked for Tom Waits a big shift in his own musical style. Preceding that, it was very much like uh, starting with uh, his uh, closing time in 73, which was his first album, his first mm-hmm. studio album. He would uh, think of like a, almost like a uh, divey barroom piano playing crooner type of act. Yeah. So it was a lot of piano stuff, a lot of uh, when he when he wasn't on the piano, he might be on the guitar. But then Swordfish Trombones marked a big departure from that. And he started playing around with all manner of sounds. He intentionally would pick up instruments that he didn't know the first thing about just to see what he could do with them. Mm-hmm. And then you move into Rain Dogs and Rain Dogs really cements what would would inform and be Tom Waits' sound in general going forward. And there's yeah. a lot of like really fun 
anecdotes about the making of the album and how they went about producing some of the sounds that are super strange Yeah, on this thing. Yeah, I had read that essentially his whole style was that he didn't want anything synthesized. He wanted to be able to just generate all of the sounds himself. So sometimes he would go out and take like a drum and just record it for no reason. And then essentially at some point integrate that into a song. He literally, he talks about uh, having an engineer tell him, like, even if they didn't want to use a drum machine, it's like, look, just get a drum, just hit it a couple of times. We'll sample it. We can, we'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. And Tom Waits is like, nah, you know what? If I can't get the sound that I'm looking for from this, this exact sound I'm looking for, then I would much rather go into a room and beat up on an old dresser with a two by four for a little while and see what sound I get out of that. Yeah. Which is interesting. And you can tell that he's kind of playing around a lot in the album, um, which I also feel like, uh, which I'll talk about when we get to one of the specific songs that like inspired a lot of like jam bands um, so it's, it's a really interesting sound. One question I had for you is like, what, in what context do you listen to this music? Like when you're driving, when you're working out, like when you just want to hear <laughs> things, like when are you like, man, I got to pick up that Tom Waits album and listen to it all the way through. Once, all right. Once you get used to the sound, then it becomes it, for me, it becomes something that I can just throw on. You really can't like, if you're driving some friends around, you really got to prepare them for it. You can't just you can't just throw on you can't throw on Singapore track one and be like, all right, folks, an hour of this. And if they <laughs> if they have no clue, it's you're you're rolling the dice. I'll put it that way. You're really rolling the dice. But for me, no, this is something that I can I really can now just throw on this and a number of other Tom Waits albums. Um, and uh, there's there are probably a good four at least four Tom Waits albums that are now among my favorite albums of all time Mm -hmm. and there are a few that I think lend themselves a little bit better to like say if you're driving around I think uh maybe Bone Machine which came later would be a little closer there's a little it's a little little thumpier for lack of a better word um whereas the other end of the spectrum uh the first live album he did Nighthawks at the Diner which is this fantastic double album which is it's he was still chiefly on the piano. He did it for a live studio audience. And every track has this uh, fairly lengthy, like usually a couple minutes, spoken word introduction. So it's this really cool, it's halfway between, uh, like I was saying, that that almost like melancholy, uh, what he refers to it, like part of his image as being like the, the crying into his own beer piano yeah. player, um, mixed with this weird, these weird uh, near beat poetry type uh, monologues and the monologues would continue onto his albums. Almost all of his, uh, especially his later studio albums have one spoken word track, uh, ninth and Hennepin in the case of Mm -hmm. rain dogs. Um, All of this to say that one, even less of uh, maybe a driving around record uh, than this one is. Although having said that there are a number of tracks on that album where like, if it's late at night, the roads are mostly clear don't, I was going to say you've had a drink or two. Don't drive if you had a drink or two. <laughs> but maybe, you know, your friend is driving and you've had a drink or two and you know your friend is uh, slightly off-kilter musical taste. There are a few tracks on that album I think you could throw on for a, a low-key night drive and it might feel appropriate. Yeah. I feel like, especially in this album, there was a, a really interesting mix of things that had somewhat of a poppy feel to them or at least like a, a big band swing kind of thing. And then other ones that were more obscure, like essentially I felt like it broke down into three different categories, which were experimental, um, poppy, and then narrative tracks. Yes. Uh, I would say that's that's an apt description, experimental poppy. But within experimental poppy, a number of different sounds. You've got a bit of rock. You've got some folk. You've got this weird like Kurt Vile vibe to a lot of it. Um, you've got, but then you have these big departures. You'll have these, uh, these ballads, a couple of ballads on the album, which of course Tom Waits, voice, if you've never heard like a real emotional ballad in that voice, yeah. it's, it seems, uh, like a massive, uh, musical incongruity right. again until your ear adapts. He sounds a little bit like, okay, I actually heard at some point, this was years ago, but I, I heard Tom Waits' voice described thusly. It's like you took his voice box and you soaked it for a week or so in bourbon and then you left it out in the hot sun on some asphalt for another week right and then you dragged it back and forth over a bed of hot nails and that's 
Tom Waits' voice. I've also heard people posit that he sounds ever so slightly like the Cookie Monster, which... It, okay, so somebody on YouTube, and I discovered this too a couple of years ago. I don't know who to attribute this to. Yeah. But some clever soul on YouTube did a mashup of a Tom Waits song called God's Away on Business uh-huh. with footage of Cookie Monster. And it's it's quite something to behold. Yeah. It sounds genius. It's pretty great. Um, I mean, regarding his voice, I don't think it t- it was too jarring. Though, to me, all of the A-side stuff in terms of his voice was better than the B-side voice, mostly because it felt right in all of the like really sailory sea shanties type tracks. Like Singapore. Right. Yeah. Whereas later he takes on a more like introspective view of things and it's just like someone kind of making their way through the city and that's where it starts to feel kind of incongruitous yes and that well that's where you start to get a, a couple more of the ballady feeling tracks and that's where you get like we take a hard turn at one point uh and the the song blind love is a full-on country song oh yeah like just in the middle of the album there's really nothing else country ish you get a couple you get some like twangy guitar sounds on a couple other tracks like i know downtown train that like the intro riff sounds a little twangy maybe yeah but just hard left and suddenly we're having we're a full-on country song and we don't come back to that at any other point on the album but you were talking about uh story tracks and you're talking about it feeling like or maybe i'm paraphrasing some of what you said but it feeling like uh there was a bit of a through line at least in certain places and the album was uh intended to be anything very much is it's, it's a concept album but it's a, it's a loose concept album right about uh the urban dispossessed of New York city. Mm-hmm. And I love one of the big things that I really love about Tom Waits. And if we talk about specific tracks, we can get into it a little bit more, but I feel like at his, I was going to say best, but let's say at his most accessible and even at times at his least accessible, the feeling I get listening to that music is this feeling of like, and maybe you've never had this experience, but like I used to, uh, I was living before I moved out to California, I was living outside of Boston for like four years. And for a while when I was living out there, uh, I did boxing training at like this boxing gym in, in Quincy, I believe. And there was a guy, wasn't my primary trainer, but a guy that was always there. And I think he was like an ex-fighter who I, I think at this point was down on his luck, basically lived at the boxing gym. Mm-hmm. Like the guy who ran the place just let him stay there because he trusted the guy, guy worked for him. So one night we trained for a while and then the guy just said like, hey, do you want to just like go out and like grab a drink. I was like, all right. And so we went out we grabbed a drink and then somehow I ended up hanging out with this guy for the rest of the night, uh, getting inebriated and wandering through Boston, but like real late at night. Now, of course, if you go to like downtown areas, you can always find people wandering around regardless of the hour, even if nothing's open, Mm -hmm. but certain areas of downtown Boston at certain hours of the night are pretty quiet. And when you're super drunk in a city that that feels, for all intents and purposes, like it is completely devoid of people, it's very, it's sur- it's incredibly surreal. Yeah, you almost start to feel like as you're wandering around, you pass all these buildings, you pass all these alleys. There must be somewhere in an alley just off a road that you can't quite see around the corner. There's got to be a doorway, and if you enter that door and you walk down some stairs, you're gonna find. A, a bar that you you didn't think existed outside of like a, a Kurt Vile piece, like outside of a three penny opera type story yeah. where drinkers that have been there for years, they all know each other. They go to this same place all the time. There's a weird like gypsy hobo band playing in the corner. And it's like this weird, dark, demented, but not dangerous, just strange yeah. version of, just everything like the, the, a tiny little melting pot, like how America was designed to be in the first place, but that only exists way off the beaten path. You can probably, it's like Narnia, but you have to be trashed to get there. <laughs> That's, and there's something weird and dingy and dare I say almost magic feeling about mm-hmm. it that I feel his music evokes. Okay. I could see that where, I mean, I, I do feel there are a lot of, places in my notes where I think I had written something to the effect of like feels like uh, like sad or not even sad but just 
a, a group of people off who are kind of wandering. Yes. And that's what it seems like is this place where people who are all trying to find their place are have gathered and that's the kind of bar that you're describing. Yeah, exactly. Just a whole bunch of vagabonds who are, they're all every single one of them is down on their luck. Every single one of them is is drinking to not everybody's drinking to forget, but they're definitely drinking to get away from what they normally experience for one reason or another. Right. Right. And then you've got, like I say, like this weird cornered off gypsy hobo band. That's just like, they've got an accordion. Um, Oh man. Uh, re what's his name? Mark, uh, Rebold, who's a guitarist, a studio musician who collaborated with Tom Waits on this album. This was, uh, I think his first collaboration with Tom Waits, but also I think his first, uh, major studio recording mm-hmm. and he talked about how when Tom Waits was instructing everybody like they wouldn't necessarily have rehearsals they'd just hang around and Tom Waits would play him the songs on his guitar so they'd all know what it sounds like and I guess he was just like go but yeah. uh, a, he said like a fr- an example of a frequent musical direction from Tom Waits would be play it like a midget's bar mitzvah for example and I think if you go back and you listen to Rain Dogs with that in your head you're gonna go oh I hear it <laughs> but like that that style, and that's how I picture in this fantasy bar that that all of Tom Waits's characters I feel like congregate at. It's almost yeah. like you know how somebody did that YouTube mashup where they're all in the Scarface bar, but it's like the villain the villain bar where you've got like all the villains from uh, big popular movies. Mm-hmm. It's a very clever edit, and they're all like in this bar staring each other down. Right. That's how I picture all of Tom Waits' characters congregating at this imaginary bar that exists in a little hole borderline underground in a in probably New York which is interesting because i feel like all at least from this album that it has an old westy feel to me like yes. there were a number of times where i was like this feels like it would be in a brothel or this feels like it would be a bunch of people gathered around at a poker table in the old west yeah absolutely and i think i think he carries that sound through even further on a couple of his later albums there are uh, there's an album well by reference bone machine and there's a couple of uh, tracks on there for sure that really further that sound and then the whole mule variations album which i think is the album that he finally won a grammy for Mm -hmm. uh that's like the predominant sound on that album is it okay i mean well there's okay there's a range there but no i'm gonna assume that every (laughs) track just sounds like that one sound there's a there is a range there but he definitely furthers the feel that you're talking about a little bit later on okay um i so what is it about tom waits other than like just the kind of free form experimental sound that like appeals to you like there were tracks where i felt i really enjoyed the the horns on it or some that i really enjoyed the guitar uh and i imagine for you you you've had time to kind of piece take out all the pieces and just see it as a whole and like really appreciate each individual layer that is put together in these songs sure um but and so for me having heard it a few times just not because it takes me a while to get into music just because like there are so many different levels right and again too like i was saying if you're not used to this sound you really have to retrain your ear a little bit to get used to the sound yeah um and like I said, once you do, there's there's a massive amount to be discovered there. So one of the things that I love about Tom Waits was it's everything we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, it's the sheer the, the range in variety of musical compositions that he's put out. And we've been discussing that a little bit as well. But I think for me, once you click, once it finds a perch in your brain... What I find really incredible is on the same album, frequently in the same song, and it's a combination of the instrumentation, the lyrics, and yeah, Tom Waits' vocal performance. You'll get you'll get within one track, you'll get the the most ridiculous light whimsy, mm-hmm. and you'll also get this deep melancholy, this deep sadness, and it feels so Tom Waits' voice is so crazy, right? And it's so out there, and it's so... You could argue, if you, especially if you're not used to it yet, a little bit ridiculous in places. But once it clicks for you, and you start to feel it, it's like everything feels so... Even the fun stuff feels so achingly 
immediate. Yeah. But like that ache too is a big part of it for me. It's like, it's like the first song on the album is uh, Singapore. And it is basically like what you were, you were referring to a little bit earlier is almost like this weird pirate shanty, Mm -hmm. but it sounds like there's so like, it's this guy's not new at this. You know what I mean? Like every, uh, every track you feel history and you feel the weight of experience and the weight of time. And you feel the hurt that comes along with that, even in the funnier, jauntier tunes, right. which I think is something. I think it's more Tom Waits is an all around. It's like a f- multi-quadrant full four all of the four, right? <laughs> four quadrant performer, which is a bad metaphor. Uh, but he's, he's a lyricist. He is a musical composer and he is absolutely a performer. And I think all of his songs are some, he actually has written musicals, but, uh, not all of his albums are designed necessarily that way. They're not all necessarily designed even as concept albums loosely or otherwise. But I feel like every single song of his that I've ever heard is also on top of everything else I've said, like its own weird little piece of musical theater, Mm -hmm. which I think is really cool. Yeah, I'd agree. Like there were songs, one of them, I don't remember which one. um, It was like a love ballad, but it didn't feel like it was to a person, but to a city. Yeah. Which I thought was really interesting. Yes. Track one is Singapore. Yes. Um, which I had already mentioned is very pirate shanty like. Um, I I like it as an introductory song, uh, because it kind of gets you set up for what the rest of the album will be. Even though the rest of the album definitely like leaves that real fast. Like you get a little bit of it for I want to say two songs. It may, it's, it's Singapore and clap hands. And then after that, it just changes completely. Yeah. Then, then we go to, we go to Cemetery Poco, which is amazing. Um, but yes. Okay. So uh, continuing first two, first one or two tracks. Yeah. Um, and cla- uh, I will say I was, I don't think I was a big fan of clap hands. Interesting. Seeing like, I really dig that song. I love that it, it feels all right. It feels somehow simultaneously jaunty and sinister. Yeah. And I really enjoy it. almost feels like a threat as he's singing it, <laughs> which I really, really dig. Interesting. Well, I, I think I like, I like the sinister feel. Um, I, it kind of is in line with other songs I've enjoyed in the past. I, don't, I think it, because it, to me, it feels like a song that would kind of play in the background if you had a bunch of people like building a railroad yes. or something to that effect, which I, I like as a cinematic song. I don't think I, it's a song that I would listen to just in my free time. Sure. <laughs> I mean, that's that's totally fair. Um, but this too, like there are a number of places in the first first couple of songs, it starts immediately where he is painting these incredibly vivid pictures of uh, characters who live these very bizarre, like I use the word again, these very bizarre vagabond existences. And he puts mm-hmm. a little slice of it in front of you. Um, and the, the imagery in the lyrics is so uh, evocative. Yeah. And it always feels like too, his, his character, his character, like his, and he's often the narrator of these stories that he's telling through his songs. But he, as the narrator, always has a clear point of view as well yeah and again sometimes it is the the i'm an old hand on this pirate ship and we kind of we're going to singapore tonight and the captain's a one-armed dwarf and like all of that yeah but then you also get like like on clap hands where clearly like he's it it seems like he's telling he's telling a story about somebody else but if he's telling it to me it really does feel like an incredibly dire warning of sorts even though they're not explicit about anything terrible happening to anybody in the song. It's very much, mm, watch yourself. Yeah. Nobody's sure where Mr. Knickerbocker's at. And by the way, I would, uh, my one friend, so I have to credit uh, uh, my friend Nick, who I had heard Tom Waits a little bit before the one year of college that I did, but it was when I met my friend Nick at the one year of college that he was like, Tom Waits is amazing. And I was like, all right, get me into it. And he did successfully. Um, but then randomly, like a couple of years later, I'd shoot him a text, be like, you know, it just occurred to me. It's been like X number of years since this number was, uh, this album was released. Uh, have we found Mr. Knickerbocker? 
Is Mr. <laughs> Knickerbocker okay? If not, we're probably never going to find him. But yeah, and I, I do think the only reason I bring that up is to draw uh, uh, an even finer point on how you you do get a sense if you if you listen to enough of his tracks and you get to know some of the personality types that frequent his stories. Yeah. You do start to feel like you actually know these people he's even if they're the characters unnamed, you start to get a sense of like okay, using context, I can probably guess exactly who this character is. Mm-hmm. And that's impressive too because I don't feel like there are a ton of songwriters who especially and not to disrespect any pop artists working now, I actually think that there's still some pretty okay stuff happening in pop music now. But I feel like you don't get a lot of performers, a lot of uh, singer-songwriters that are telling stories that feel like stories. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, even when somebody's telling a story in a pop song, it's pretty simple. It's usually about, like we're hot let's dance let's mm-hmm. let's love each other tonight it's all about tonight it's all about right now right um not the depth not the the breadth of experience contained in a single story in a song and so i think you do get a feel for it you get a feel for who the people are and i think that's really rare and really impressive because yeah. again how many artists weirdly Billy Joel does that pretty well mm-hmm. actually and like over time as well similar different styles some overlap, actually, strangely. Yeah. Um, but he, too, uh, f- almost every time tells a story within his songs. And he has characters. And you start to get a sense of who, really concretely, who these people are that he's telling his stories about the more you listen to his music. Right. Not too many other artists that I can think of off the top. Somebody's going to listen to this and go, you forgot this person and this person. You (laughs) dummy. But off the top of my head, sitting here having this conversation, at least artists that have really spoken to me that I find this uh, evocative on a personal level. Yeah. I feel like you don't find that that frequently. Well, I feel like you find it mostly in concept albums. Like, Coheed does it a bunch. um, And... Um, uh, what are they? Green Day did it once in the American Idiot uh, album, which eventually became a musical. That's right. Um, but it's not—it's not something that's in like a single, or not something that is in like specific albums that are just kind of a series of one-off songs. Where I mean, in this album, there are, let's say. There are a number of characters, not necessarily intertwined, not necessarily have ever met or are a single solitary narrative. You're not following one single person throughout, but there is a full cast of characters. Yes. And and to your point, you talk about going from Singapore to clap hands and you almost buy, even though I don't feel like we're in exactly the same story anymore, you can see a pretty smooth transition from one to the other right whereas it feels like you get to cemetery polka and suddenly we are in a completely different story that's still connected it's like we're watching a tv show with a really sprawling cast and suddenly we're in a completely different plot line Mm -hmm. we don't know how it connects to the other plot line we don't know if it connects to the other plot line but we believe although these this set of characters this life that they're living is clearly completely different from where we've had our feet planted for the two previous tracks no less evocative and no less believable that they inhabit the same world right uh yeah rain dogs is the game of thrones of albums <laughs> uh i i would i would I would like to pull on that thread a little bit. <laughs> I feel like there's something to to explore there. Well, especially when you get into Cemetery Polka and he's painting this version this uh this picture of a family mm-hmm. because he keeps talking about these different uncles. Yeah. But this weird this bizarre bizarre like uh uh potentially inbred like slaughterhouse family. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, it, the song opens with, uh, the lines, uncle Vernon, uncle Vernon independent as a hog on ice. He's a big shot down here at the slaughterhouse plays accordion for Mr. Weiss. So not only is he, whatever big shot at the slaughterhouse means, maybe he's running the thing. Maybe he's just like employee of the month. You, you, uh, rotted the most cattles, you, uh, right. You, cattles, uh, <laughs> 
whatever. I don't know what it means, but he's also, he's an instrumentalist. He's got his accordion as well. And he's, it's that, again, the same gypsy vagabond spirit. And it's also an interesting dichotomy where right. I feel like when I think of somebody who's running a slaughterhouse, the next thought I have is usually not, I bet this dude plays a mean accordion. <laughs> uh, yes. I, I will say that like in the short amount of time you get her description of these characters, they proved to be quite, uh, I guess, layered. Like there are so many different facets to them in the like four lines of dialogue you get per character yes. or per family member like a, another uncle reference to runs a, now runs a tiny little bookie joint and they say he never keeps it in his pants and i feel like you really oh it's like suddenly you don't know this guy like if you and i had never met and that's all i was told about you uh-huh. is that you run this tiny little bookie joint and you've always you're just always you're just swinging your dick everywhere i'm not going to presume to know your entire life but it definitely paints a very clear specific picture of the type of person we're looking at right and it's weird because it perfectly describes me. That is actually, time really bared us out on that particular description. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like this album is catching up to my life. <laughs> it's because it was so close to my birth, which we just, you know. That's exactly what it is. You shared, you shared some energy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> terrible. Well, dude, no. When, the first time you brought this up, and now the second time, because you reminded me of it again. Uh, so... We've talked about off mic how maybe my favorite thing uh, created by people ever is the television show Twin Peaks Uh and the most iconic weird episode of that series, which is episode depending on whether you count the pilot. It's either two or three, but it's the one you've seen. If you haven't watched the show, you know the episode I'm talking about. It's where Cooper has uh, the dream and he first sees the man from another place, the, the dancing dwarf and everybody's talking backwards for the first time. And when it first aired, everybody was like, is the world ending? What's happening? That episode aired the week I was born, like mm-hmm. aired within a couple of days. Yeah. So I like to think based on absolutely nothing at all, that there's some type of bond there. The way you now describe having chosen to <laughs> bond with. <Rainbow. laughs> yeah. It's all connected. I don't know if you know this, but this world is a simulation and it's specifically created for you and I <laughs> leading to this moment. And then it allows us to comment on the simulation itself. It's like active uh, reviewing. Wouldn't that be bonkers if obviously simulation theory is very much a thing. The theory yes. that posits that technology is going to grow to a place relatively soon where we could create a very lifelike situation. And I guess you extrapolate that to, well, if it's possible, then it absolutely has already happened. And we are currently living inside a simulation. So if that's not enough of a head trip, imagine the simulation gets shut down, but you're still here. And somebody like, like Lawrence Fishburne, not even Morpheus, literally Lawrence Fishburne, celebrated, revered master thespian steps out. And he's just like wearing his streets and he tells you not only was all of reality as you understood it a fabricated simulation, it was all created specifically for your benefit, like uh, a digital age Truman Show. Which would be insane because I would hope that if a reality was created for my benefit, it would be better to me. Like, you I would be this king of all things. Not, But not for your benefit, like, yeah, you don't get to live as a monarch. For your benefit is as much as, oh, we really got to put you through the ringer. To It's really more the scientist's benefit. But it's like, we really got to put you through the ringer and make you the strongest, toughest, most resilient mm. person we could be. But we're going to do that by creating the most, the most regular, mundane, boring world for you to live in. Interesting. Uh, I mean, I would say that, yeah, conflict definitely creates a stronger individual and a more entertaining show if it was indeed being consumed by others outside. And when you get to your final day and you've lived a long, productive, although I suppose entirely fabricated and artificial life, you are on your deathbed and the credits roll. Obviously, you got to get production credits because a lot of people work to build this reality. Oh, yeah. And it gets to you're near the end of the credits music. And it turns out that every single song that you have ever heard in your entire life was a Tom Waits composition (laughs) performed by other artists. That would be dope. And weirdly, not the most surprising thing that could happen. That's true. I mean, to his benefit, like there are a lot of songs that 
minus his voice and substitute it with another person's would be amazing. Well, and like I said, there are a number of examples of that. Some of his songs that he wrote became big hits for other artists. I think simply by, by virtue of their sound being not better, because honestly, it's all art. How do you judge something like that objectively? Right. But certainly more accessible to the ears of most people. Yeah. Um, so that was Cemetery Polka. <laughs> I, like, I like that we were able to bring that back around. Mm-hmm. Imagine, though, living, imagine living in a simulation, knowing it was a simulation, and the simulation you're in is the, the weird borderline Texas chainsaw uh, family environment of Cemetery Polka. I'd watch it. But you got to live it. Mm. All right. <laughs> I'll accept it. But two, this Cemetery Poke is the first track on the album where when I heard that descriptor that the guitarist gave of one of Tom Waits's instructions to play it like a midget's bar mitzvah. Yeah. Cemetery Poke is the first track where I really start to go, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that tracks. Definitely. I mean, because at, at that point, if you're at that bar mitzvah, then essentially you're describing all the people who are uh, related to the main guy. And you're like, well, it's that guy who does this. And it's that girl who does this. Like in the same way that like the song being called Cemetery Polka, it feels like when you are at a funeral and which is for a lot of people and a lot of families, uh, a family reunion, you know, and it's you kind of getting reacquainted with the people that, you are related to, even though it's under harsh circumstances, it's you remembering everything about these people. Yes. And there is there is contained within that what you're describing as weird and, again, jaunty and, and whimsical as that song is, right there in the title, Cemetery Polka. So there is very much an element of darkness to it. But the other thing that's cool is like, yes, Tom Waits can do darkness that feels very sinister and does frequently, but he can also do this, this darkness that feels less sinister and more melancholic, mm-hmm. but he can blend that so seamlessly with the weird and with the upbeat. Yeah. And again, that's an effect that I, I think you see a lot of people make gestures in that direction, mm-hmm. but I don't think, I mean, I referenced, it's very similar to, I referenced uh, Twin Peaks a few minutes ago. You see, countless filmmakers trying to do David Lynch and the most you can accomplish in my opinion is you can make really uh, efficient gestures in that direction but there's only one guy you can go to if you are looking for that thing yeah Tom Waits same deal you get a lot of other artists that and I think do okay jobs with making big gestures in that direction but I don't think people hit all of these boxes in perfect harmony with each other Mm -hmm. the way weights does yeah i i can see the the genius of it and how like putting it all together like it shouldn't work but yet he somehow makes it work yes and to like look if if you give me room to run with it this is probably not the last tom waits album i will make you listen to now it's entirely possible your ear never fully adjusts all the way and like maybe you can respect him as an artist but his sound isn't necessarily for you but give yourself the opportunity to adjust, let your palate all change a slight little, little hair to the left or right. Uh-huh. Dude, oh, there's so much. There is <laughs> so much there. I will say that I, I don't think that my ear needs too much adjustment, but like I, I, I think I can appreciate it in terms of the musicality of it. Yes. Um, well, more just so on a couple of his songs where it feels a little bit like he's shouting at you. Right. Where you can get past the, ah, of it. Mm-hmm. And then just get into it. Like you say, like really start to hear the musicality under the like aggressive gravelly sounds. Right. And I think that, because to me, I feel like everything in, in side one like, his voice is great. I, I feel like towards the end of side two, side B, side two, um, that's when he starts getting a little more yelly and just kind of out there, which I think that it, to me, feels if, if you're listening to the track uh, in one single swoop, then it feels like you're getting a live version of this album and, and he's getting tired by the end. <laughs> 
Um, which is fine. I just, that's just how it feels. I don't, I don't, that's an, I wouldn't have thought to phrase it that way. I actually don't disagree, but it also, the way maybe I would phrase it if we're going to run with that idea is not so much that he's getting tired, but like in this weird hypothetical gypsy bar that I envision in my brain, Uh if he's the piano player he's starting to bring us in for the night. It's like, we're getting closer to last call yeah. and like, all right, we're just going to, I'm going to take all my energy that's left and just throw it out there so I can send all these guys home. I'm, I'm playing the piano. I'm probably drunk as shit by this point in the mm-hmm. night too. So it's a, it does feel like a continuation of that feeling. It's just now we are at the end of the night and we're about ready to send everyone off. Yeah. And that's when I'm really going to, I'm going to start doing weird. Everybody's trash. So I'm going to start doing weirder shit and I'm going to start bellowing a little bit more. Cause I'm also drunk and I want to wait. I don't, want him to stay here all night but if you're nodding off at the table i want to make sure you're still here if you're still here still be here so i'm probably gonna bellow right at you right um i think it all tracks <laughs> it's it's really weird but i think it still tracks no i dig it i i really like that analogy in that yes it does feel like it's especially in this hypothetical bar that we've been speaking about that Essentially, you're, you are getting more and more slosh as the time goes on. And, and as you're recounting all of these tales and, and thoughts and things like that and drinking more, you are getting a little louder and a little more verbose and, and, and loud. And, and that is how you're expressing yourself by the end of the night at which the last song comes on and you're just kind of walking through the city heading home. Yes, very much so. Uh, and two, back half of the night, everybody's way drunk. But like this is this isn't a country bar, but you know what? Screw it. I'm just gonna play a country song now. And you know when if he's if we're continuing the 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 image of he's playing this whole album as one big set, you know that even though Blind Love, for example, isn't far, far, far from the saddest country ballad that anybody's ever performed. Yeah. You know somebody in the back of that bar is weeping openly while he <laughs> sings Blind Love. Yeah. I mean, I I won't say I weet when I heard Blind Love, but like it filled me with lots of sadness. Uh, I think one of my notes was just dot 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 sad. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, what? Uh, remind me. What's the? We're gonna obviously we're skipping around a little bit, but yeah, yeah fourteen fifteen. So the other thing, uh, a cool little bit of personnel trivia for this album mm-hmm. this was if i'm not mistaken the the first collaboration between tom waits and keith richards obviously oh, yes. uh, guitarist for the rolling stones who did uh guitar on track six which is big black mariah and then i believe uh 14 and 15 union square and blind love and i think on blind love he also did background vocals yeah, And he was talking about how uh, they would work together and Tom Waits would be describing uh, the feel or the sound of a song. And, you know, Keith is a, a genius musician in his own right, but two different artists trying to find a way to communicate. And maybe he, there was something he just wasn't quite gelling with. And yeah. then Tom Waits would apparently just move a certain way. He would just start making motions and Keith would go, Oh, all right. Why didn't you do that in the first place? <laughs> and then they would go and they got it. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, can I talk about union square and how much I disliked it? Yes. Why did you dislike union square? I, I think I don't like, I didn't like the sound like in some of them, like beyond his voice, like the music, the music was enough to sway me. But this one, the music and also the sound and the lyrics did not hit me in any way. This is like the this is the only song that I specifically said not a fan. Interesting. Yeah, like some of them, like I think the the first one I had a meh uh, reaction to was clap hands, but like I dug the sinister feel to it. But Union Square, I actively was like not for me. Fair enough. Um, is that a, is that a track that you you enjoy? So okay, uh, it took me it did take me a second to like place specifically which song it was, and I think that's that's telling. I think every other song, I immediately I can hear the whole thing in my head, and it took. I was like, which one is Union Square? So I had to uh, uh, place it for myself in my brain. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, 
why okay why do you think that one specifically did not click with you i i'm not sure like i it has a very industrial feel to it like there's a lot of metal clanging sounds and this is definitely one of the more yelly songs i think specifically one of my notes for this song was that his voice is better than the song and not that the, his voice in the song is better than the song that's being played i mean from what i've heard of his voice it's better than what he's displaying in this song. Sure. And then in general, I think like it has a very, I'd say that this is falls under the pop narrative songs. Um, and the, the pop feel is fine. Like I could see you jamming out to it in like a, a lounge club or something like that. But I don't think I really enjoyed the combination of the, uh, the voice and the industrial sound to it. Okay. And, and that's, that's fair. I could see that for me. I think once again, it paints another, another picture of another slice of life that could exist just a few steps to the right of some of the characters in these other songs, like specifically Mm -hmm. because of the, the industrial clanging sounds. Yeah. I could, I get a feel of like we're factory workers. Shit, maybe we work at the slaughterhouse that Uncle Vernon is a big shot at. Mm-hmm. But we work in an industrial environment. We break our backs all day, and now it's five p.m. It's quitting time. We're gonna raise hell. We're going downtown. We're gonna get trashed, and we're like, we're so excited. We're tearing off our shirts practically as we do it. Right. So I get, I get what your your qualms are. It for me though still paints so evocatively a very specific picture that tracks mm-hmm. for me because those guys, even before they get drunk, they're exhausted. They, like I said, they've been working hard probably all week, right? Busting ass day in, day out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're going to on their way to the bar. They're getting so excited just to go and unwind that they're already getting a little sloppy. They're already yelling at each other as they go down the street. Yeah. It, that, that picture sells it for me. Okay. Uh, yes. I, I, from a narrative standpoint. The the one more thing too, is it's the second song on the album. I think the second song, the, there's the instrumental piece Midtown that sounds like a demented go-kart rally to me a little bit, Uh or almost like you, you tore bumper cars out onto the streets of Manhattan. And you're just like, you're, you're, you are in this metaphor, uh, this image. Uh, completely hammered behind the wheel, but yeah. you're driving go-karts at bumper cars and you're just like <laughs> bumping off of things as you go down the street of like Midtown. Yeah. Um, this is the second song that feels almost like a weird, uh, uh, demented go-kart rally to me oh, really? as well. Cause I can picture, I can picture these guys on their way out of work, uh, on their way to the bar. And as they pass the bar or maybe as they leave one bar already drunk, to go to a second bar, they find those discarded go-karts from a handful of tracks ago and they get into them and now are just like whooping and hollering as they bump into each other on their way to the other bar. Right. I could see that for definitely for Midtown and then definitely the end of Bride of Rain Dogs. Yes. Um, mostly because it has the, the them dope horns. Both of them have dope horns. Um, and then Bride of Rain Dog like ends with like kind of a circusy type deal. Yes. Well, the title track rain dogs, the first line of rain dogs, first half of the first line is mm-hmm. he references being inside a broken clock and listening to bride of rain dogs. Again, I felt like we went inside that broken clock mm-hmm. and that, that gypsy band I referenced is, is like shrunk down inside a tiny vagabond bar that is inside this broken clock. <laughs> almost like to reference David Lynch again, almost like the lady in the radiator in Eraserhead. It's like if you could travel inside this broken clock, there was a tiny version of this gypsy band playing right. Bride of Rain Dog. I mean, with that image, it feels more like it's from the perspective of one of these people in the bar and they've gotten so wasted that like their head is down on one of the tables and they're just face to face with like the clock of the bar and it's them counting down to when they have to go home to whatever they need to go home to. Yes. And and, yeah. and two, to further exactly what you're saying, I feel like the spoken word track on this album, Ninth and Hennepin, is that same guy picks himself up. He's still he's still trashed. He's exhausted. He knows he's got to go home. 
he orders one his last call he orders one more for the road and ev- he knows the bartender and the bartender knows this guy's had too much but he also knows he's not driving and like yeah. they, it's like all right f- here you go one more for the road guy takes the whole beer finishes it real fast stumbles out of the bar doesn't remember how to get home mm-hmm. so he just stumbles disoriented around these empty streets at like four in the morning it's late last call for this bar. Right. It's a weird bar. I mean, it, that's the, I mean, I think that's currently what the last call is. That's in true. New they York. just, they just did. That's relatively recent, isn't it? Yeah. That's see, I don't feel bad that I didn't know that. <laughs> um, but that guy just wanders around these empty streets feeling like he's going a little bit insane as he does it. Right. But in fact, he's just, he's just trashed. Well, of course. Yeah. Um, I actually really, really liked that track with the, the spoken word, mostly because that's my bag. Um, if you've ever heard Godspeed You Black Emperor, uh, they did a song called The Dead Flag Blues, which is essentially 16 minutes of instrumentation. And then it's somewhere in the middle, probably about six minutes in, there is a spoken word monologue that's real dope. Yeah. Uh, and then it just continues on for the next 10 minutes as just instrumental. Uh, so that kind of stuff really gets my goat. Sure. Um, and I feel like, especially this song, uh, it, there's another song by, uh, by the Mars Volta called Cassandra Gemini, which also has, uh, it's mostly instrumental. It's 30 minute song with, uh, I want to say about five minutes of words. And part of that word is just a spoken word dropped right in the middle. Um, so it's a trend and that's, uh, what the song reminds me of. Yeah. And of course, right off the very first line, uh, it's nine, it's ninth and Hennepin and all the donuts have names that sound like prostitutes. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's so, again, it is so instantly, it puts you in, if not a physical location, absolutely puts you in a mindset because that does sound like a thought that that drunkard stumbling home from the bar pre-twilight or not twilight dawn let's say pre-dawn yes we don't dawn doesn't sound uh uh ornamental enough like twilight is such a nice it's true a nice tinselly word we don't mm. have like dawn is not by comparison <laughs> uh but pre-sunrise yes. <laughs> but it definitely sounds like the thought that that drunkard might have stumbling home mm-hmm. and as i mentioned tom waits will include these spoken word tracks on a lot of albums going forward. But of course that's something that he really began much, much earlier. Like I said, Nighthawks at the diner has every other track is the spoken word piece that leads you out of one song and into the next one. But I would say if I had as much as I love ninth and Hennepin, probably my favorite Tom Waits spoken word track off one of his studio albums is off of, I believe it's mule variations and it's called what's he building in there, which is great. Yes. What, is he building in there? I don't know. Do I have to listen to the song to find out? Well, they say he spent some time in jail. Hmm. What's he building in there? It's great. Now, Mule Variations <laughs> is another is another album that I would encourage you highly to listen to in its entirety. It's got uh, Hold On, which is one of my favorite Tom Waits songs, if not one of my favorite songs in general. Yeah. Great, great, great album. But, yeah, Ninth and Hennepin. Uh, drunkard stumbling home donuts have names that sound like prostitutes yeah speaking of jail uh there is one walking spanish this uh, is great too because we can speak about jail in more than one sense using this as a jumping off point but yes continue yeah i actually i really dug uh, i had to look up i felt like i was missing something when it came to the term walking spanish and so I had to Google it and okay. find out that that is essentially the walk to death row, or at yes. least the walk to execution. Yes, there's uh, that. Once you know that too, there's that incredibly uh, evocative line in the back half of the song where he says, "Even Jesus wanted a little more time when he was walking Spanish down the hall." Mm-hmm. It's like, bet he did. <laughs> I, I've seen Last Temptation. I bet he did. Yeah. He was like, man, Mary Magdalene, am I right? And then he was high-fiving all the people, and then he dropped his cross, and then he picked it back up. And then every face looked right up at Mason. And they were like, hey, Mason. He was like, don't look at me. (laughs) But so I said we could use uh, that as a jumping-off point to talk about jail in more than one respect. So 
that track features an alto saxophone performance by a gentleman named John Lurie, mm-hmm. who is a, a jack of all trades. He's a he's a, an actor. He's a musician. He's a painter. He I don't know, probably owns a spacecraft of some kind. Uh, sure. John Lurie, in his capacity as an actor, appeared in uh, a number of projects. But uh, for me, maybe most notably, a couple of Jim Jarmusch movies, uh, Stranger Than Paradise, which was Jarmusch's, I guess you could say, his breakthrough feature, but also a subsequent movie called Down by Law, in which John Lurie co-starred with Roberto Benigni and Tom Waits. Oh, it's a great movie. It's a lot of it's a lot of fun. It's got one of my favorite sequences in a movie set in a jail. If you've seen Down by Law, you know the uh, ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream sequence. It's terrific and demented in a very similar way to much of Tom Waits' musical output. But also, Down by Law uses a couple of Tom Waits songs. You got him involved in your movie, Why Would You Not? Uh, track four off of this album jockey full of bourbon is played over the opening credits to that movie oh also worth noting tom waits has also had a a pretty if not massive pretty noteworthy film career as well uh, as an actor he was uh uh, obviously down by law but he's also in mystery men he's the dude that makes them their non-lethal weapons Oh, really? Uh, yes. He was uh, Renfield in Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula movie. He played uh, Mr. Nick, who's basically the devil in The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, the Terry Gilliam movie. That That is Heath Ledger's actual final movie, mm-hmm. the one he was not able to complete. Um, so, yeah, pops up all over the place. Yeah. Interesting. I feel like now I have to go back. And and see those things just to be like ah I know who that is now he's in uh, he's in Martin McDonough's Seven Psychopaths as well he's the guy with the bunny oh I haven't seen that oh well he's the one with the bunny got it okay now I'll have to see it for the first time and go hey I know who that is there you go um so we are running out of time Boo. unfortunately uh so I we like to end these shows by asking would you recommend it. Uh, and as you like well, recommended it to me, uh, I will say that, yes, I would recommend it to people, if not just to get a, a different perspective on music that is experimental and just to kind of get an, a sense of who Tom Waits is, especially with based on everything we've talked about, how influential his music has been since his in, not inception, but since the beginning of his career. Yes. So I would say a big fat yes. Uh, And so let us know if you would recommend it or if you've had a chance to listen to Tom Waits' Rain Dogs. Let us know what you thought of it and we will uh, get back to you. Yeah. And like the one thing I do, the, the maybe the most appropriate note I feel like I could personally end on is obviously this sound is not going to be for everybody. No sound is for, well, Taylor Swift seems to be for like everybody. Basically. Don't like her. No, that's fair. It's for you too, though. Oh, I bet. I bet T Swift would gladly take your money for one of her albums. Oh, I'm sure she's a little scary. I'm maybe not going to talk too much about T Swift. She <laughs> she frightens me. She'll but, come after you. But there is okay. So a couple of years ago, uh, one of my good friends who is in very heavily involved in musical theater, dude is a brilliant, brilliant singer. He's got a beautiful voice. We were talking about Tom Waits, and I played him some tracks. I think as I got him into The Wire, and I was like, oh, yeah, it's a Tom Waits track that they keep using. And he's like, who's Tom Waits? And I was like, well, let me tell you. And I played him some stuff. And he didn't dislike it, but he said, like, super casually, not in a – this is not a, meant as a heavy condemnation, but he's basically like, well, yeah, but, like, you know, it's not like he's, he doesn't have a good voice. And I was like, well, hang on. What, is, what does that mean he doesn't have a good voice? If your barometer is – classic musical theater sound then you're right it's not that but what makes a voice a quote-unquote good voice and i would encourage listeners who maybe do take a listen to this or any other tom waits album and and chafe at the sound a little bit maybe you'll never like it maybe it's not going to be for you and that's okay but really give yourself an opportunity to experience a sound that is different than what certainly what you're going to hear on the radio most times. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the greatest music that's being made right now requires you to tweak your ear a little bit. And yeah. I would encourage just open yourself up to it. Let it wash over you. Let that the bourbon and hot nails soaked goodness, just, just every tissue of your body, bourbon and hot nails. 
That sounds painful. <laughs> so painful. <laughs> Inside and out. Um, oh, man. Yes. Once you have a chance to take a listen to it and let it wash over you like the bourbon and hot nails, uh, hit us up on Twitter at MissingOutCast. Uh, that's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T, Missing Out Cast. And also on our personal Twitters, Lex, where can they find you? I am all over social media. That's all of the things that there are. Every last one of the Insta, Twitter, facey things. Mm-hmm. And the Lex Michael. And you can find me at Tari J, T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y. Thanks again for listening to Missing Out. This is the Missing Out podcast with Lex and Tari. And we look forward to talking to you soon. Tom waits. Tom, wait for us to come back. Uh, it was terrible. I quit. <laughs> <laughs>